The events at Asbury University recently (coughs) have caused us to reflect upon the subject of revival. I'm not going to repeat what I've said previously about the spurious nature of that particular event, but what I would say is that revival is a real thing. Revival is something of which the Bible speaks. Revival is something which church history teaches us is a very real thing. There have been false revivals, there have been spurious revivals, there have been things that have been claimed as revivals throughout history. But notwithstanding that, there are times when God has moved in mighty power. And those times when we reflect upon them cause us to pray like the psalmist in Psalm 85 and verse 6. Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? There's such a need for revival, I'm sure you'll agree, in the day in which we live. We look all around us and we see evidence everywhere of outright paganism, godlessness, worldliness, a lack of desire for spiritual things. And in many instances, this is true of those who profess the Lord's name. There's worldliness, and there's carelessness, there's apathy, there's indifference, there's coldness, there's deadness. So there's a need for revival. As I said last time in our opening message on what I hope will be a short series on revival, Revival is a topic upon which many preachers feel really not qualified to speak because of the fact that they have not experienced it. I could wish that I could call someone from history, from some of those great revival times, such as John Livingston at the Kirk of Shots in Scotland in 1629, or George Whitfield from the 1730s, 1740s, or Jonathan Edwards from the time of the Second Great Awakening. And I could go on and on speaking of men of God who have experienced revival in their own ministries. Men like Asahel Nettleton. Men like the Flaming Tenants, who were the founders of the Log College in New Jersey. I'd love to call upon them and bring them to our present day and stand in the pulpit here and let me sit down and let them tell you about what revival is like. Well, we don't need to do that because we have their writings. We have many things extant that teach us of what revival is, about what a move of God looks like, about what happens when revival comes. As Psalm 44 verse 1 tells us, our fathers have told us, we've heard with our ears the things that God has done in the times of old. Last time I talked about revival under certain terms, certain ways that we can describe revival. 
The word revive is a word that's used in the Hebrew Scriptures. And we explain that that term in the Hebrew literally means to make alive or to recover or to repair or to restore or to make whole again that which has been split into pieces. We said that the word revival and light words are synonymous with the term quickening, making alive, revitalizing, renewing of life, a reawakening of religious fervor in the true sense is how we could describe revival. We said last time that revival is a spiritual work. And we must emphasize that. It's something that God does. It's not something that men do. There are people who talk about revival and say, we're going to have a revival in our church in two or three weeks' time. Well, that's a misuse of the term. Because you cannot predict that you're going to have a revival. You can't produce a revival. You can't manufacture a revival. It's something that God does. It is a spiritual work. And so we pray to the Lord for revival for that precise reason. I mean, if revival was something that I could bring to the church myself or some other preacher could bring, why would we need to pray? Why would we need to ask the Lord, Lord, revive us again, if it's something that we ourselves could do? But revival is not something that can be manufactured. You can't get on social media or whatever (coughs) social media platforms you decide to use and, and, and get people all excited that there's a revival. It doesn't work that way. Revival is something that God does. And so we pray for a spiritual awakening. Because you see, when revival comes, there's a quickening of the spiritual life of Christians, but there's also the securing of conversions in numbers that are unusual. When we see one or two people converted, we think that's a wonderful thing. When God visits in times of awakening, people are saved by the score, by the hundreds, by the thousands. What must that be like? To see God move in that way. It is a spiritual work. It is a sovereign work. And that really ties in with what I've already been saying, that this is something that God does. One man said that revival is man retiring into the background because God has taken the field. It's a sovereign work. And just like the rain that falls from heaven, sometimes you'll go to a certain part of the country and it's dry, it's dusty, there's cracks in the ground, there's drought. You go just a few miles and it is totally different. The vegetation is green. There's moisture everywhere. And you say, well, why is that? Well, it's just the way it is. We see that in the weather patterns in our country. If you ever watch some of these weather channels, they'll talk about there's massive storms out west, and over here there's nothing. Or vice versa, there's storms here in the northeast. There's a, there's a nor'easter coming, and in other parts of the country they're basking in sunshine. That's the way it is, right? In a sense, you could say the weather is sovereign. 
It goes wherever it wants to go. The wind blows where it listeth. You hear the sound thereof. You can't tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. The Lord Jesus said that. In one place that there's a lot of rain, (coughs) there's tremendous growth. Somewhere else where there's no rain, there's no growth at all. You see, revival is a sovereign work. It's something that the Lord does when He chooses, as He chooses, and to whom He chooses. I've actually been shocked at times to read of movements of God in certain places where I would not have expected it to happen. Through men that you might not expect to be used in revival. I was reading about a man by the name of Glenn Dinning. My grandfather, one of his names that he had, he was called for that minister. That minister lived in Ulster way back in the 17th century. And apparently he was really eccentric. He lived in a place called Six Mile Water. And all he ever preached on was the law. Never preached the gospel. Just preached on the law. And yet, God moved in the Six Mile Water Awakening. It was an an amazing time of revival. And that man was one of the instruments of revival. Glenn Denning later in his ministry became so distracted, so mentally affected, that he went off to Asia to look for the seven churches of Asia, which had long since become defunct. But that's William Glendinning. And you would say, well, why and how could God use a man like that? Because God is sovereign. God doesn't always have to work according to the ways that we would expect Him to work. Or through whom we might expect Him to work. We might say, well, that man's a mighty preacher. God will use him mightily. This guy can hardly preach his way out of a wet paper bag. God would never use him. But that's not how it works. And oftentimes the Lord will use the most unlikely instrument to bring about a mighty move of God. Someone said, God can draw straight lines with a crooked stick. Revival is a sovereign work. I quoted a minister from Glasgow last Lord's Day. I think it's worth repeating. His name was the Reverend Michael Willis. And he said this. It really is apropos to what I'm saying today. To humble the pride of man, it has sometimes happened that the same minister, blessed in gaining many souls to Christ in one place, has proved himself comparatively fruitless in another place. So the same man, preaching the same message, in one place is mightily used, in another place... Hardly anything at all happens. Why? Because God is sovereign. And because God is sovereign and revival is sovereignly sent, it cannot be had just when we want it. Revival cannot be had just when we demand it, but when the Lord is pleased to give it. When God is pleased to answer prayer, God is not bound to do anything Nor can we hold God to ransom. Nor can we think that there's something wrong with us because revival is not coming 
after praying for such a long time. Some years ago I had a conversation with the Reverend Walter Shantry. He used to minister here in Pennsylvania. He was a Reformed Baptist minister. Good man. Godly man. And we were having a chat about revival. And he told me that he and several other ministerial brethren of his had prayed regularly, I think it was every Saturday, for over 20 years for revival. And I said, brother, it still hasn't come. And he wasn't saying that God doesn't answer prayer, or that there's something wrong with us, or that there's something holding back revival. He just was emphasizing again the sovereignty of God in this matter. And we discussed how that it's so interesting that in England today, there are many churches that are inhabited by ethnic minorities. Now why is that significant? But if you go to places like London and some of the congregations that are there that are evangelical, you'll find that the congregation is largely made up of people from Africa and from the Far East, from places like South Korea, from African countries, from India. There are very, very few white Londoners in the churches. Relatively speaking. And Mr. Shantry was commenting on that to me at that particular meeting that we had. How that it seemed to him that a lot of these countries that we used to send missionaries to from Great Britain, from America, they've now become the missionary countries sending their missionaries to our country. There was a black minister in London, I'm not sure if he's still there or not, by the name of Achille Blaise, from Africa, preaching in London. There are actually, believe it or not, missionaries from Africa going to Great Britain with the gospel. Revival is a sovereign work, and God will move when, where, and how he chooses. There's a couple more things I want to say today in relation to revival. And I want to say this, that in considering revival, the history of it, the records that are given of it, we note that it is a special work. And when I say it's a special work, I have to say to you, there are people who have claimed that the church could be and should be experiencing revival all the time. I've read that. Where men have said the church ought to be in a perpetual state of revival. Well, I don't agree with that. And I'll tell you why I don't agree with that. Because by its very definition, revival can only be said to be something that is unusual and unique. When something has grown almost dead, it's not dead, but it's comatose. It needs to be revived. It needs to be brought round. It needs to be quickened. And by its very nature, this is not an everyday occurrence, but it is occasional and it is special. 
Now look at the psalm that we read today. Psalm 102. We read in verse 13 this wonderful statement. Remember, this is a prayer. Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion for the time to favor her, yea, the set time is come. Now just mark that and remark upon that. For the time to favor her, yea, the set time is come. What does that mean? Well, it suggests to us that there are set times in God's eternal purpose to come and bless His church in a mightier way than usual. See, the Holy Spirit, we know, is always present in His church. We recall the words of the Lord Jesus Christ to the disciples. He was encouraging them about the fact that even though he was going to go away, that the Spirit of God would come to them. They were so sad at heart that the Lord was going away from them. But Jesus said, look, I'm going to pray the Father, and he's going to give you another comforter. You see this in John 14, verse 16. The word comforter is parakletos. It means one called alongside to help. The one who is at your elbow. The comforter. It's also translated advocate in 1 John 2 and verse 1. We have an advocate with the Father. We have a parakletos. We have a, if you like, an attorney. Someone to represent us. We have another comforter. Notice that he may abide with you forever. Now look at verse 17. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. So people who claim that they're filled with the Holy Spirit, but they're not converted, they're not filled with the Holy Spirit. Because they cannot receive the Spirit of truth, according to this Scripture. But the Lord says, But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. See that? He dwelleth with you, and He shall be in you. This is the doctrine of the indwelling Spirit. When you come to Christ, the Spirit of Christ comes to dwell in you. He comes to live in you. Your body is called by the Apostle Paul the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God. Therefore, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. The word that's used for temple there is naos, not hieron, it's naos in the Greek. Why is that significant? Because it not only refers to the temple, including its outer precincts, it refers to the holy of holies in the temple. That little inner sanctuary, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, that's your body. The temple, the naos, the holy of holies of the Holy Ghost. Did you ever think of your body that way? That's why we should treat our bodies correctly. Because our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He dwells in us. Now, if that's true, that the Holy Ghost is always present in His church, and it is true, 
Can we not also, however, say that there are times, there are set times, when he draws especially near and he puts forth a greater degree of his power. And this is what we call the outpouring or the infilling of the Spirit. You can be indwelt by the Holy Ghost, but you can also have the Holy Spirit's power poured out upon you. And that is what revival is. It's a special manifestation of divine power. It's something not ordinary, but extraordinary. It's special. One minister I read about said, Revival is divine intervention in the normal course of spiritual things. That's a really good definition. It is divine intervention in the normal course of spiritual things. You think of the fact that God's people meet every week and we have the means of grace. We sing to the Lord, we pray, we read the Bible, we have preaching. But when revival comes, something special happens. And there are protracted services, not something that's manufactured, but something that God does so that ordinary services become extraordinary. Regular services become irregular in the sense that God begins to move in a mighty way. And I'll read a couple of extracts later that illustrate this. But we could say, for example, instead of small remnants meeting for worship, churches are full. Prayer meetings, especially prayer gatherings, are crowded. It's not one or two. It's not a few, like... Grapes in the outermost branches. It is a situation where the prayer meeting becomes the focal point of the church. And rather than just one or two getting saved occasionally, multitudes are born in a day. That's what happens when revival comes because it is a special work. And that work of the Spirit is periodically bestowed. It's not an everyday thing. One wrote, we have in grace as well as in nature our dry seasons and our wet seasons, times of drought and times of showers, the rain comes by spells. Just illustrating what I said a little while ago. One place where the rain comes, another place where there's hardly any rain. The work of the Spirit is like that. It is periodically bestowed. Let me read to you from the preface to a large book that I have in my library. It's by a man called John Gillies. It's called Accounts of Revival. It'll take you a long time to read it, but it's marvelous material. And in his preface to that book, he makes the following observation. From the beginning downward, the work of the Holy Spirit presents to us many of the same features and characteristics as in our own day. Periods of revival and decay succeed each other. Iniquity abounds and is allowed to proceed onward apparently unchecked as if God had forsaken the earth. 
Sounds kind of like today, doesn't it? A few remain faithful and testify for Jehovah. All in vain. Sounds like today, doesn't it? Then, suddenly, God steps in, makes bare his arm, does his own work, puts aside the instrument, manifests special grace and reaps special glory to his name. Then, perhaps, judgment succeeds, either the swift vengeance of his sharp sword or a long night of death. Anon, he draws nigh once more, puts forth his hand, and the tide rises in silent majesty like the ocean along all its shores. Again, barrenness prevails, and desolation covers the land. Then he opens the windows of heaven, and the swollen torrents rush along the valleys, diffusing life on every side. Such are his dealings with the children of men, and such the plan on which the kingdom of grace is administered, having, like that of nature, its seasons and fluctuations, its winter and its spring, its droughts and its floods, all to show forth more clearly God himself as the doer of the whole, to sink the creature and exalt the creator, that thus men may not mistake the hand by whose pressure the tide rises, from whose invisible but resistless influence every ripple takes its form and course. What is he saying? He's saying that revivals are special events. There's decay, there's declension, there's backsliding, then there's a move of God. There's decay, there's decay, there's declension, there's backsliding, there's a move of God. That's history. That's church history. And so we think about the fact that there's been tremendous declension, decay and backsliding. Should we not expect that one of these days there will be revival? You know in revival days, ministers got very little sleep for weeks on end because they were busy dealing with souls. They just would not be able to maintain such a schedule indefinitely. Having to stay up every night for weeks on end, counselling with people who were in distress because they were coming to know the Lord. Even physically, revival could not be sustained on a continuous basis. It's a special work. But it is a work that occurs from time to time and brings tremendous blessing in its wake. The writer of a book on revival at Canvas Line, wonderful book by McFarlane, he says the proper end of an awakening does not require that it should continue. One of the most common objections to such seasons is that they are temporary. And so ought they. A soul asleep in sin has to be awakened so as to think of his condition and be led to Christ. But being awakened, it has only to be kept awake, not to be awakened anew in the same way as before. A church is different in this. That, for the sake of awakening sinners, 
it has itself to be from time to time awakened. But it would not do even for a church to be always in the condition of canvas line in 1742 and 1743. Because ministers have to study edification as well as conversion. And in this They have to teach the whole counsel of God. So basically what he's saying is, there wouldn't be the time to have revival every day, every week, every month, every year, continuously. It is a special work. And oh, that the Lord would visit His church again with that special time. The set time. The set time to favor Zion. Oh, that we could see such a time. And in thinking about revival, we must also say that it's not only that which is a special work, but a sudden work. It's a sudden work. Look with me at the scripture. Second Chronicles 29. Second Chronicles chapter 29. Sometimes the happenings in scripture have been variously described by ministers. Sometimes they've been referred to as a Reformation, such as in the days of Josiah, a Reformation. Other men have referred to the same events and called them revivals. And I think they're both right. Because when, when there is a Reformation in society, it's because there is a revival. They go together. There's wholesale changes that are brought about when God moves in mighty power. But notice here, What I would suggest was a revival time when Hezekiah was upon the throne. And without reading all the verses in 2 Chronicles 29, all the things that happened, we do get a summation of Hezekiah's reaction to all of this in the last verse. 2 Chronicles 29 and verse 36. And Hezekiah rejoiced and all the people that God had prepared the people for the thing was done suddenly. The thing was done suddenly. And revival, let me tell you, in its full glory always bursts forth suddenly. It's unexpected. It's not planned for. It's not anticipated. It comes forth very suddenly. <clears throat> Wasn't that true of the great revival at Pentecost? Turn with me there to Acts chapter 2, verse 1. And, <clears throat> and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And what do we read next? And suddenly. Suddenly. There came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled all the house where they were sitting. They weren't jumping about like banshees to rock music. They were sitting. They weren't hanging from the chandeliers. They were sitting. This was a dignified affair. This was where men and women were doing things decently and in order. It actually was a prayer meeting if you look at the context. They were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a breath which was the Holy Ghost. And you will find that the arrival of times of refreshing 
It tends to be sudden and surprising. That great revival in New England, connected with the second great awakening, involving Jonathan Edwards, it was spoken of by that man of God when he wrote about it as the surprising work of God. That's how he, that's how he viewed it. That's how he described it. In fact, I have a book at home, a very small book by Edwards, in which he speaks of that which took place, and it's called A Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God. It's sudden. God can change the spiritual landscape in our nation suddenly. He can do it overnight. He can do it in the twinkling of an eye. Shouldn't that encourage us? Shouldn't that cause us to pray with expectation? God can change things suddenly. Everything could change in a moment. Because the Spirit of God has visited. I was just reading this week about Samuel Davies, wonderful minister in this part of the world, a man who ministered actually in Virginia, a man who was described later by Martin Lloyd-Jones as the greatest minister America had ever produced. Samuel Davies <coughs> talked about the effects of a revival that came when he was preaching in Virginia in 1757. He gave this account. It's not very long, but listen to it. Davies said, About 16 years ago, and this would be, if you go back, 1757, that would be 1741. And what's really interesting is in 1741, way across the ocean in Scotland, there was revival taking place. In Campbell's line. It's amazing, isn't it? Samuel Davis said about 16 years ago, in the northern colonies... That would include this part of the world. Where all religious concern was much out of fashion. And the generality lay in a dead sleep in sin. Having at best but the form of godliness. But nothing of the power. When the country was in peace and prosperity. Free from the calamities of war. And epidemical sickness. When in short there were no extraordinary calls to repentance. Suddenly, a deep general concern about eternal things spread through the country. Sinners started out of their slumbers, broke off from their vices, began to cry out, what shall we do to be saved? And made it the great business of their life to prepare for the world to come. Then the gospel seemed almighty and carried all before it. It pierced the very hearts of men, with an irresistible power. Davis says, I have seen thousands at once melted down under it, all eager to hear as for life, and hardly a dry eye to be seen among them. Many have since backslidden, and all their religion has come to nothing or dwindled away into mere formality. But, blessed be God, thousands still remain shining monuments of the power of divine grace in that glorious day. 
Something had happened suddenly. What an encouragement for us. I quoted last week, I'll quote it again. Isaiah chapter 64 and verse number 1. It's a prayer to the Lord. And it's certainly applicable to this great topic of revival. Isaiah 64, 1. Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. Think of that. Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens. A bit like the tearing or the rending of a curtain and someone bursting through that curtain. That's the picture here. Rend the heavens and come down. This is expressive of a sudden action. The rending of the heavens and God himself bursting through. Our situation today, as the Christian church and even as a nation here, can swiftly be transformed. And I want to tell you, it will not be by political action. It will not be by putting the right person in the White House. It will not be because you voted in sufficient numbers for people who are of a conservative mindset. All of those things may be good in themselves. But this nation would be just as godless with all of those things in place. Our situation can only be transformed by a move of God. Look at Isaiah 35. It speaks about the wilderness. That's a place that's associated with drought, isn't it? No water. But there are places in the wilderness called oases. What's the plural of that? Oases? More than one oasis. The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. If you go out to Arizona, go to certain parts of Arizona, you'll see cactus that are absolutely beautiful. Gorgeous colors. And you think to yourself, how could that be? Because they're getting, they're getting sustenance from somewhere. They're getting a water supply from somewhere. Even though it's desert. Read on. Isaiah 35 from verse 6 and 7. Then shall the lame man leap as an heart, the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness, you see that in the unexpected place, where you might not associate it with water and with floods, in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert. That's a lovely thought, isn't it? Mrs. Cowman picked that up and wrote her devotionals based on that. Streams in the desert. And the parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of dragons where each lay shall be grass with reeds and rushes. See this? Vegetation, growth, moisture. All expressive of something that has happened because God has visited. Sudden change. 
When Jonathan Edwards wrote about the revival that he was involved in in New England, he said, The Great Awakening came suddenly, like the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, upon the colonies. As one New England minister testified, Immediately preceded by a long season of coldness and indifference, the Great Awakening broke upon the slumbering churches like a thunderbolt rushing out of a blue sky. There it is. Sudden. A sudden move of God. Can God change our situation here in this country? Of course He can. Can God, can God give manna in the wilderness? God can. Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? That should be our prayer. I want to close with a quote from C.H. Spurgeon. Spurgeon was a mighty man of God. Mightly used. He saw many converted in his ministry. I'm sure he saw times that were, that would be described by us as times of revival. But I do know that in 1859, at the time of the great Ulster revival, Spurgeon preached in a large park that I know very well in my home city, Botanic Gardens, not so far from where I grew up. Spurgeon preached there. I hesitate to add that I wasn't there. But Spurgeon preached at the height of the revival. And what he preached there has been put into a little booklet called The Story of God's Mighty Acts. You should get a hold of it if you can. He talks about that which happened at that time. Thrilling, thrilling account. Here's what Spurgeon said once in one of his sermons. Is there any limitation in the Spirit of God? Why should not the feeblest minister become the means of salvation to thousands? Is God's arm shortened? Brethren, when I bid you pray that God would make the ministry quick and powerful, like a two-edged sword for the salvation of sinners, I am not setting you a hard, much less an impossible task. We have but to ask and to get. Before we cry, God will answer. While we are yet speaking, He will hear. From this moment, you may pray more. And from this moment, God may bless the ministry more. From this hour, other pulpits may become more full of life and vigor than before. From this moment, the Word of God may flow and run and rush and get to itself an amazing and boundless victory. Only wrestle in prayer. Meet together in your houses. Go to your closets. Be instant. Be earnest in season and out of season. Agonize for souls. And all that you have heard shall be forgotten in what you shall see. And all that others have told you shall be as nothing compared with what ye shall hear with your ears and behold with your eyes in your own midst. The psalmist said it of the Lord. Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion. Zion there representing the church. For the time to favor her 
Yea, the set time is come. May the Lord be pleased to send us times of refreshing from His presence. May the Lord be pleased to create soul thirst for Him. May the Lord be pleased to send a great awakening that will be for us a surprising work. May the Lord do it for His own glory. Amen.